Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. Season 2, Episode 2, Headline News. So, this episode is a bit of a companion piece to the first Headline News episode, because um, both deal with the subject of John Lennon's divorce declaration. The first episode explored Paul's obsessive need to promote the John asked for the divorce storyline, simplifying a complex subject down to a soundbite, which resulted in headlines such as, Paul McCartney reveals crush on Queen, and how John Lennon gleefully quit the Beatles, reflecting two of Paul's favorite themes. But as a result of these headlines, the Beatles break up and John's declaration is once again on our cultural radar and being discussed around the world. In the last episode, Duncan and I explored why Paul has landed on this overly simplistic explanation. What is less understood is John's perspective, and yet we do have some information that has been wildly unexplored. Only three days later, on September 23, 1969, John Lennon gave a thoughtful and meditative interview to Barry Miles that communicated a little of how he was feeling at that time. And so this interview is what we're going to dive into for this episode, because it gives truth to the lie that John was gleeful after he made that statement. Perhaps as a result of Paul's recollections of the divorce meeting, where John apparently said he found quitting quite exciting, we are left with the impression that John remained euphoric, sailing away to America with Yoko Ono to fulfill his greater artistic promise. But a careful examination of the timeline reflects that this was not the case. For the next 16 months, I believe John Lennon provided many openings for negotiation and reconciliation of the band. He also engaged in intensive therapy to deal with his underlying trauma, which refutes the idea that he was happy with this situation. This interview that John gave three days later is really a snapshot of how John was actually feeling at the time. And I am so lucky to have Duncan Driver here with me again to dig into this intriguing interview. Hi, Duncan. Thanks for being here. Thank you. It's lovely to be back. 
it's interesting that nobody's actually looked at what happened next to John, you know? Mm. And well, so, anyways, that's what we're doing right now. It's taken 50 years, but we're doing it right now. So, uh, here we go. Let's dive in. last episode, we went through the reasons that Paul McCartney might be promoting the simplistic soundbite that John asked for the divorce. These reasons included not wanting to be labeled a villain, not being able to see beyond his own perspective, not being open to other configurations of the Beatles, wanting to give John the mantle of being the one who started and ended the Beatles, his own internalization of the traditional story, and finally, his need to convince himself that he was not responsible for the Beatles' demise. While we disagree that John's statement was decisive or definitive, in fact, I made the case for why it shouldn't have been taken that seriously, we did agree that John's statement instigated the end. is painting this picture right now and he seems to have a bit of an army behind him like Peter Jackson's talking about how sad he was at this time that this was reflected in the tapes and he's making this case and yet what gets ignored is that other people in this story were very sad as well and so you know Paul in the New Yorker makes the point that he was sad, but John didn't give a shit because he was off to jump on the next ferry with Yoko. Whereas realistically, three days later, John Lennon gave a pretty depressed, bewildered, rambling interview to Barry Miles. Don't you think? Yeah, I think it is. It's interesting to read the excerpts we have from this interview, which I believe is an unpublished interview and think of it in light of his statement three days earlier. And I think some of what seems sort of mad and rambling and incoherent, it almost makes more sense when, you know, this is the John Lennon who three days earlier was on a high from having quit the Beatles. Um, and now this is the sort of come down after that high. I, I read right. that between the lines of this, don't you? Oh, absolutely. We are all left with this impression that John was excited because Paul tells the story that, you know, John said, this is exciting. And so he's had this adrenaline rush. But for all Paul wants to paint himself sad, and the story seems to be moving in this direction right now, Paul was fairly immovable and he wasn't actually giving up any power. So to have made that statement 
and grabbed power, it probably felt good. You know, he's probably excited. Like he turned the tables. He maneuvered the situation to one where he's really powerful. And I'm sure it felt exciting. Yeah. But then this is three days later and it's a very different mood we find John in. And it's interesting because just lines from this interview have been published and it's a really important interview. And so we want to go through the excerpts that we have. And and actually this is uh, from Amaralto's site. There's an excellent site where this person has collated a bunch of really interesting information. Obviously they've been a collector for a long time and they've collated part of the unpublished um, part of this interview. And one thing that always occurs to me is that he gives this interview to Barry Miles. And I always find that intriguing because Barry Miles was one of Paul's best friends. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like he gave it to some rando that would never talk to Paul again. No. And if he wants to talk to a journalist, if he wants to give an interview, he's got Ray Connolly on the 1969 equivalent of speed dial anytime he he wants. And yet he makes this (laughs) choice to speak to Barry Miles instead. Exactly. Exactly. Like Ray Connolly is hanging outside the door at Apple waiting for interviews. And yet he chooses to talk to Barry Miles. And I just find that interesting. Like, is there something to that? John talks about how he uses interviews as therapy, but I think he also uses them sometimes to communicate. And so this is three days later. It seems like this interview is used to explain what is going through John's mind. Yeah, sure. Should I, should I read some of it? Yeah, it would be wonderful. I'm thrilled for you to read it because I sound nothing like John Lennon. Even though you sound nothing like Lennon, you sound a lot more like John Lennon than me. I don't sound anything like John Lennon. You do not, but you know what? You sound really good when you read. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) You know, when I read this um, Barry Miles interview, It makes me think of the ending of the movie, The Graduate. You know, that ending where Benjamin and the girl, I can't remember the the female character's name, but, you know, he runs into the church, grabs her, and they run giggling out of the the wedding ceremony, having, you know, jilted her husband that she's just about to marry. And they're on such a high, they get, get on the first bus they can find, this is like yeah. what Paul says about John and Yoko being on the ferry, the first yeah, yeah, yeah. ferry out of London. Um, and then you just watch these two faces get more and more, more and more crestfallen as they realize <laughs> this hasn't changed anything. All of our problems are still here. All we did was seize one moment of, of giddy opportunism, and now it's gone again. <laughs> yes, and, and that's exactly what I think what happened is that John – wanted to change things, that he was unhappy with the situation. And so he asked for the divorce. He makes this assertion, I want a divorce. And then when it settles a couple of days later, he's kind of like, shit, blowing up the Beatles is not what I want. I want to change, but now I've just made Mm. things worse. Mm. Like I was unhappy with the way the Beatles are. Now there's no Beatles. And and the reason I think this is that we've got the interviews from John in 1971 telling the story of the monk and his golden temple, the fact that he's he's 
reminiscing and he's really trying to think through, he's ruminating about why he did what he did. And he tells the story of this, this monk that loved the temple so much that in the end he, he burned it down because he couldn't stand for it to change. And so the insight for me there is that that's how much he loved the Beatles. Yeah. Now I know a jean jacket would be like, well, he just wanted to end the Beatles when they were still good. But I, I don't think that John Lennon had that much foresight. I, I take from that the fact that he's ruminating about why did I end it then because I loved it so much. And we get John Lennon a few days later just going, fuck, Ugh. Yeah. you know, but, it, and there could be part of it that's like, okay, good. Well, I did something cause it wasn't working. So at least I, took an action. So there could be part of John that's happy that he took an action, but it didn't solve anything, you know? Mm -hmm. And then we've got the interviews with John later that year where he says, yeah, I did say I wanted out at one point, but I was just so frustrated with Apple. That's right. You he, know? He starts talking about the plastic Ono band being an escape valve um, from the Beatles, but that very much sort of sets the Beatles up as like the main, I don't know, pressure tank or whatever like it's still looming very large in his life right and he sort of makes the point that he he doesn't know how it's going to turn out he does set up the plastic ono band as being a side thing that mm, he can always escape I mean. yeah. to yeah 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 but even at the end of 69 the beatles is still the thing and we made this point in our instant karma conversation but there's a lot of walking back from john about this statement if i was listening to john lennon closely I would be thinking, all right, he's giving me room to negotiate and come back. Gene Jackins can talk about the fact that, oh, he was just playing nice for the press, but he's not playing that nice. He's sort of mm -hmm. saying that, well, you know what? If they want to come with me and Yoko, they can, and I would prefer it. But if they don't, fuck them. So he is saying that there is room, but I, I think he's sort of saying like, well, you know, I got to be able to lead us now, which I think in... In that way, Paul's like, well, fuck you, you know? Yeah. So anyways. Okay, so Duncan, if you would do me a favor and read through it, would you read just that first section? Yeah, sure. And I'll just reiterate the fact that what we have here are excerpts and not an entire interview. So he sort of jumps in in quite a sudden way, or at least yeah. he gives that impression. Oh, yeah. Acquainted with the touch of the velvet hand Like a lizard on a windowpane The man in the crowd with the multicolored mirrors On his hobnail boots Lying with his eyes while his hands are busy Working overtime Why shouldn't I be a poet, a filmmaker, a dancer, an actor? Let's do it all while the going's good. That's it, really. It's a freedom. It's a relief because you can never escape from the hell on earth. There's no escape from that. Even for two people who are as lucky as us two that have somebody that can be as close on all levels, there's still great depths of misery to be found. That's the human condition, and there isn't any answer for that. Even yoga and all the different philosophies, they all just paths to get out of it. On the way there, it's just the same for everyone. The highs and the lows are just great, and you develop your confidence, but it's still the same old games. Even talking about it, I get a bit, you know, they're there and there's no way out of it. 
But at least now I know this is a high plus a low, and the low needn't last that long. Just last year, I remember watching that film on the Falcon, Kez, directed by Ken Loach, and it was so depressing. I remember seeing this film on BBC Two about a guy training a falcon, and he lived in this beautiful little cottage in Cornwall or somewhere like that, and it was dreamlike. He didn't have any problems. It was just nature and him training the falcon, and it was just so beautiful. And I thought, God Almighty, it's all I want, really, but it can't be, or I'd get it. Well, I can get it. I can get a cottage and live there if I want to. I always have this dream of being the artist in a little cottage, and I didn't do any of these gigs or publicity or anything like that. I just wrote poetry, a few oils, and that's the dream. Seeing this film reviewed for the past few days, it was just the end of it. Here we are in this grand palace. We've got nice people with us, and everything's going well. And here's this film, and it makes us so sad to see it that there's no way out. The grass is greener. It's strange. Not that I want to be a falconer or anything. It just seemed like such a dream, living in a cottage and wandering in the trees. I can't really wait to be old. You do your best, and there is a time when you do slow down, and it seems nice. I always look forward to being an old, old couple of about sixty, just remembering everything. I suppose we'll still be cursing because we'll be in a wheelchair. <laughs> right. Well, it's it's a sad statement, knowing knowing the history that we know. But beyond that,、yeah. I mean, my goodness, when you look at some of these statements, you can never escape from the hell on earth. There's no escape from that. Oh my、mm. God! This is the man that is considered to be elated. You know, and th- there's still great depths of misery to be found. I mean, this is this is John Lennon three days later. He doesn't sound like a happy camper at this point. He's and he sounds、no. desperate to escape it, doesn't he? Like this. Yeah. This, Even this, though he's this, he's talking about the reality of highs and lows, he's talking about them in such a way that suggests he's now experiencing a low and trying、yep. to remind himself that he will eventually find his way out of it. Right, I find that very wise, but it also speaks to somebody who has had experience、mm. with highs and lows. You know what I mean? Like he he is definitely speaking from experience that I now know it needn't last that long. You、yeah. know, it, it is the musings of somebody that is self soothing.、Mm. <laughs> you know that this is this is the human condition. We all go through this, and we'll get through it. I mean, it's、yeah. very sad. There's such a longing. Yeah. For relief from the the feeling. That's right, and it is not a John Lennon who is giddy with elation and optimism at breaking out of the Beatles to forge his own hero story.、Um, you know, for, even if you think that happened later, I don't see、yeah. that John Lennon present here three days after he made that announcement and was apparently, you know, flushed with excitement. Right, right, exactly. Nor is this the John Lennon that doesn't give a shit, which, according to Paul, now he he doesn't. But you know, this may be John in a low mood, crashing、mm. after the excitement of that. But these are also thoughts that John has clearly considered. You know,、yeah. like these are the kinds of things that are going through John Lennon's mind at this time. He's thinking about you can never escape from the hell on earth. There's no escape from that. This is something that John. Thinks about this isn't this like freed, happy, elated, empowered John Lennon. This is going through John Lennon's mind as well. 
I think like a, a line that really sticks out to me is that common phrase, the grass is greener. Absolutely. And it's, it's very hard for me not to read that, knowing what happened three days earlier. Yes, And absolutely. now to think what's going through John Lennon's mind is, oh, my God, maybe, you know, torpedoing the Beatles wasn't something that was actually going to make me happy. Absolutely. He's on the greener grass right now. Exactly. And I feel like he's kind of like, oh, God. You know, this is, this is kind of the wisdom of John, like a few days later going, oh, shit. <laughs> Maybe the grass is a little better over there. The way this um, excerpt starts, it's like he's, he, there's a part of him who wants to use this opportunity to justify his decision by saying, yes. I'm going to be a poet what? and a filmmaker and a dancer and an actor. And he can't <laughs> get true. four sentences into it without this, <laughs> this artifice collapsing. <laughs> That's totally true. It's why shouldn't I be? It's defensive. It's defiant. And like, who's he fighting against, you know? Why shouldn't I be a poet, a filmmaker, do all these things? And that's kind of the John Lennon story of like, he yeah. left to do greater things. But like you said, he very quickly descends into, oh, why can't I just live in a small cottage away from it all? And who does that remind you of, living in a stone cottage <laughs> away from it all? This is exactly Paul McCartney about like three weeks later. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that John has this desire, but he goes a different way. He has this mania at this time, whereas mm. Paul actually does do this. Like John says, well, I could do it, but I don't. I feel like Paul often carries out some of the things that John puts out there. Not that Paul is following John's lead here. I mean, Paul bought his farm on the Mull of Kintyre three years prior to this. And right. he had already taken Linda there and she had already fa fallen in love with it. But it's just interesting that that's the thing that John wants so desperately is peace. Mm. You know, it's just like this peace and he can't find it. And Paul actually does flee. And I think to some extent, he finds some peace there. Yeah, that's right. So do you think that um, what John is saying here is a case of uh, a John Lennon fantasy that Paul is aware of and has enacted? Or is this a case no, of John Lennon I envying don't. something he knows that Paul McCartney is currently doing? I definitely don't think, that's why I make the point that Paul already has his place. Paul says in 1966, he bought the farm because Jane recommended it to him and he always kind of wanted to have a farm. And mm. then he takes Linda there in 1968 and she falls in love with it. So I definitely don't think that this is a John Lennon fantasy that Paul is enacting. I think Paul yeah, yeah. developed that on his own. I think John vaguely knows about this, but mm. I think it reflects potentially the de desire in both of them to find some escape from the pressure, to find some peace where they can just go and be an artist without the pressure of performing. Mm. And yet I, I find that Paul often carries out some of these things that John doesn't necessarily carry out. And I, I don't yeah. know why that is, but it's just like Paul does go and live this really quiet artist life for sort of half of his life in the 70s. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like Paul's life now, doesn't it? Writing a little bit of poetry, painting a few oil paintings. That's the dream. Well, it was also Paul McCartney's life in 1970. Yeah. For a big part of 1970. Yeah. And even in the most recent excerpts of the lyrics, he talks about Eat at Home. He talks about the fact that they fled to Scotland and it was very 
very good for them. It, they just painted and wrote and puttered around on the farm. It was this kind of idyllic situation. And John went the opposite way. He went very manic for the next six months. And then he checked himself into Janov, you know? And sometimes I feel like Paul had some way of connecting with peace. Yeah. And maybe he didn't. Maybe he didn't. But I do think that escaping to nature was a very good thing. And intuitively, maybe John knew that. You know, John apparently in the between 75 and 80 always said he was trying to find his Scotland uh, in New York. He loved Scotland too, and he was trying yeah, to find it. It's part of his childhood. So, I don't really connect the two. I just find it interesting that Paul did actually go and do this. Mm. And again, I, 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 I don't think it's one bouncing off the other's dream or anything like that. I think they just sure. both had the same inclination. Yeah, well, it's it's illustrative of um, that. I, I, what I always think is a really perceptive comment from Linda um, around about this time that John and Paul are far more similar than they are different, and I see the the, the differences being magnified, um, partly because of the breakup and because the media likes to sort of pit these two people against each other as polar opposites, the yin and the yang of the Beatles. I do get yeah. that. But I certainly get what Linda says about how they have a lot more in common than people either acknowledge or probably realize. Right. And the media was partly responsible, but John and Yoko really leaned into yeah. the differences. John particularly positioned Paul as the establishment and he's conservative and you know, we're we're crazy and we're the counterculture and, and created this schism or this chasm between the two that was much larger than it really was, you know, whereas Paul kind of likes to reinforce the similarities between them. But Paul does say in 1969, we didn't marry the same woman. And I think mm -hmm. that part of what he's saying is that the differences that you're seeing are kind of brought about <laughs> by the women that we're with. I, I, I think it's his way of saying that the John that you're seeing is heavily influenced by Yoko. Mm. without actually saying that. that. That's what I suspect he's saying at that yes. time. And I'm sure that, um, that John and Yoko and certainly Alan Klein see Paul as heavily influenced by oh, the you betcha. <laughs> The funny thing about this statement is, you know, he says that we should all be so unlimited and we can all be geniuses. And there is apparently one person that does not meet this criteria. And that is Linda McCartney, John, John and Yoko's view. We're all artists, we're all geniuses, except for Linda McCartney, whose photos are sufficient. Exact quote. Anyway, so, so this shows John in a reflective state of mind where he's ruminating. He starts to talk about depression, and then he moves into his depression. Depression. That's all we ever get told all our lives. You haven't got the ability. You're a cobbler. It's like in one of my books, you're a broomystrivist or something. The father keeps saying it to him. You're this and get it right what you are. And that's all we get told all our lives, what our limits are. What we've got to make people aware of is not their limits, but what these people's limits are, what they think the limits are. People are limited into thinking they couldn't run their own affairs. And what we're trying to say is you are unlimited and you're all geniuses until some bastard told you about 12 you must do woodwork and you do metalwork and we haven't got room in lithography for you. So you've got to be a letterer and all that. That was going on all the time. It happened to all of us. But if somebody had told me all my life, yeah, you're a great artist. You're a great artist. 
I would have been a more secure person all the time. You know, this is a really beautiful statement that John is making here, that that we put limits on ourselves. we're told things, and then we start to believe them, and then we become self-limiting, and nobody should be limited except for Linda McCartney. And <laughs> we can all be geniuses and artists and musicians, like we all have these skills. And I, I think this is partly the Yoko influence that's coming out here. But then I, I do notice that he says, but if somebody had told me all my life, yeah, you're a great artist, I would have been a more secure person all the time. And John is talking about himself here, that mm. he feels like he had been limited. Yeah. And he was never told this. And as a result, he's insecure. I mean, I think a lot of people told John he was a great artist from the time he was like 18, 17, 18, 19 years old. But yeah. I guess in those formative years, he just wasn't. Yeah, it really jumps out to me when he says people are limited into thinking they couldn't run their own affairs. He goes into this weird past tense thing for a second. Yeah. And it yeah, just makes yeah. me think what he's talking about is him and the other Beatles probably being told by Dick James or somebody, you cannot run a company. That seems like very present in that little statement, don't you think? (laughs) Although, I mean, I can't say that they were proven wrong when we look at Apple. They may have been Um, right about that. (laughs) But I think he's (laughs) using it as as an example of when he personally felt um, belittled by by somebody. Right. It's kind of like... He's rebelling. There's a defiance. Like we were told and it wasn't true. But he's also saying, I'm insecure. Yeah, it's interesting when he starts to talk about a prior period of uh, depression. And, you know, he mentions it. It's going on through Pepper. And then he pivots into this claim that um, Paul wasn't experiencing this. You know, I get this sort of image of Colossus McCartney um, soaking up all the fame and adulation and striding across uh, swinging London town while That's Paul right. John is, is limping away in it. <laughs> That's <Paul's> right. <laughs> That's right. We have this view of John. He leaves the Beatles behind. He's bored and meets Yoko when they go on to greater artistic heights. And this is John's version of it. John's version of it is he was going through murder while Paul was feeling full of confidence. Mm. And, you know, we have so much to support the story. But then it's frustrating because Paul is telling the opposite story. But in some ways, they probably both feel like this. And they don't know that the other person is feeling like this. Everybody's insecure. Mm. Everybody's vulnerable. I was dreaming more or less And the dream I had was true Yes, the dream I had was true I'm just a child of nature I don't need much Would you please read this this paragraph? This is probably the most important paragraph in this whole interview. 
He gives us a lot of information. This is also the bit that really hurts my head when it comes to figuring out timelines. It wasn't really to do with Maharishi. It was just that period. I was really going through the what's it all about type thing. This songwriting is nothing. It's pointless and I'm no good. I'm not talented and I'm shitty. And I couldn't do anything but be a Beatle. What am I going to do about it? It lasted nearly two years and I was still in it during Pepper. I know Paul wasn't at the time. He was feeling full of confidence and I was going through murder around those periods. Okay. Yeah, I know what you mean about it, it hurting your head. He, he starts <laughs> off by saying we were all experiencing this depression together and then yes. says and it the depression really hit after Maharishi and Brian died. And then he starts talking about how he was still injuring it during Prep Pepper, which was before <laughs> Maharishi and Brian died. And, then says, and he starts it at all. <laughs> <laughs> and he starts it by the two years before I met Yoko. Oh my God, John. So I, like every time he says this, I'm calculating because I'm always trying to figure out timelines. The two years before I met Yoko. Okay, well, that could be 66, but no, it's probably he means like in 68. So yeah. if you go back to 66, okay, so he's depressed in 66. I think the others were on the same thing. We all went through the depression after the Maharishi and Brian died. Okay, so that could be 68, yeah. you know, right around in that time. It wasn't really to do with the Maharishi. It was just that period. And then he says that he was <laughs> coming out of it in 67. <laughs> so basically what I figured out was that I think it probably starts late 65, early 66 for John. The Fat Elvis period. period. The Fat Elvis period. And I'd love to do this period actually in depth, go in and talk about this period because I think it's a fascinating period. And I think what he's saying is that he's starting to come out of it around the time the, the summer of love, mm. the all you need is love. That's a very romantic John Lennon. And if you read Hunter Davies, everybody around him says he's much happier and he's much more um, relaxed mm. and non-confrontational. And they were just like, he's just a much nicer person to be around, you know? And in the fall of 1967, he says that this is the happiest he had ever been. And mm. this is why it's always confusing to hear biographers and the story, like John was so miserable in 1967. Well, he also said it was the happiest he had ever been and that it was a peak for him and Paul. So even if we follow John's timeline that, okay, so he started in 65 and 67, he's coming out of it. And then he was knocked back by Brian's death. You know, mm -hmm. he was happy, but he was knocked back by that. They go to Maharishi, they're feeling good. And then he was knocked back again by what happened with the Maharishi. So that's sort of what I figured out, that he's kind of up and down during this period. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think at the very least he's um, conflating different lows in his life during the Beatle period and he's mixing up his timeline a little bit. And that, yeah, what I take from it too is that he went through more than one period of, I don't know if you want to call it depression or, or just a low, but yeah, there's more than one. Um, from the period of 1965 through to 1968. That's right. You know what actually this reminds me of is the Paul, the Paul Depression period. It's like, when the hell did that happen? It kind of reminds me of that, like this vague. And I think with Paul, it was the same thing too. He went in and out of feelings, you know, feeling down and then getting out of it and feeling happy and then going down. Mm. But anyways, the most important statement in here is, I know Paul wasn't at that time. He was feeling full of confidence and I was going through murder around those periods. And I find 
what is interesting is, first of all, he talks about it lasted nearly two years and I was still in it during Pepper. I know Paul wasn't at that time. Look at the song, How Do You Sleep? How it starts. So Sergeant Pepper took you by surprise. That's right. Paul's confidence in Pepper, I think, really unsettled John. And also, he's going through this period, 66, 67, where Paul, in many years from now, in different accounts, <laughs> talks about how incredibly awesome this period is and how it was like the happiest time of his, his life. Yeah. And so, obviously, John noticed it. But I think it's very important that John connects his own depression and he doesn't talk about George. He doesn't talk about Pete Shotton. He doesn't talk about Ringo. He talks about Paul. Paul is the measure of his mm. life. This is the period where Cynthia is saying that John needs the Beatles more than they need him. And he loves the Beatles so much. He's fully committed. And I think, I think that this is where the deep sense of betrayal that we see from John in 68 comes from. John Lennon at this period feeling like, I am going through murder, I am struggling, and you are so happy. And how can you be happy if I'm supposed to be your best friend, the closest person to you in the world, and I am dying? Mm. You know, I, I think that that may have been instructive to John. And you know, John's so self-centered. John, I think, sees the world <laughs> entirely just from his perspective. He's not seeing it. Well, Paul loves me, but he's also growing as an artist. I think he's thinking that if Paul's not dying at the same time that I'm dying, he doesn't really love me because if he loved me, he would be upset by my pain. And I don't see that. So I think that John may have seen that as a reflection of the depth of their partnership. Of course, I don't know. But to me, that this is what I read into this. And then I guess there's the other alternative that John thinks that Paul didn't notice, in which case, maybe we don't have the telepathy. If he doesn't know I'm this upset, then maybe we don't have the connection that I thought. makes me think of Paul's story, which he loves telling, um, about him and John being in, uh, in a ski resort on the set of help and taking off their boots. John turns to Paul, and let's just forget for the moment what songs he's talking about, because that's what everyone focuses on, the fact that, you know, uh, it's meant to be here, there and everywhere, but it couldn't have been because it was 1965. Let's just take for granted that there was an occasion where they were both sitting next to each other. John and Paul are taking off their ski boots. John turns to Paul and referencing the music that's playing, says, you know what? I think your songs on this one are better than mine. 
And I think what people don't pay attention to there is Paul's reaction to that. The way Paul tells the story, his next comment is to go, oh, thank you very much, and move on. <laughs> and if I'm John Lennon at that point, and I've just sort of bared my, my, my soul in a way by saying, I actually think that you might be a better songwriter than me, and Paul's reaction is to go, yes! I want to sort of go, hang on, Paul, Paul, maybe you should tell John that you like his songs too. He might be feeling a little bit sensitive at this moment in time. People always talk about that Paul wanted John's approval, but I think John also needed Paul's approval. John needed reassurance from Paul. And I'm not sure how often Paul gave it because <laughs> we've got a perfect scenario here where Paul was thrilled that John loved his songs, not understanding that John needed that validation immediately back to him. I think that that's the problem throughout their entire partnership. John is constantly giving Paul information that Paul is misreading. Yeah. And I suspect this may have often been a major issue between them, actually, that John thinks he is communicating clearly to Paul in ways that actually may not be clear, but John thinks that they are clear and make sense. You know, he believes in telepathy. So Probably to John, he thinks, well, Paul knows exactly what I'm telling him. And then he watches Paul's responses and reacts to them. Um, meanwhile, Paul has not known that any of this has gone on and hasn't understood anything. And so is blindsided by John's actions and uh, is kind of perpetually confused about why John acted the way he did. And so as a result, maybe he backs off because he's hurt. And then John gets hurt that Paul backed off, and then they just kind of are perpetually in this cycle of coming together and hurting each other and backing off. Well said. I think that there's a lot to that. It might also be the case a little bit that in the Lennon and McCartney relationship, as in most relationships, when you're feeling vulnerable, you tend to be less clear in your communications. Oh, that's that's the thing is I think that John thinks that he's being clear. And of course, mm. he thinks that he probably thinks that Paul can understand him. Mm. Meanwhile, McCartney is probably not picking up on half of these things. And John may interpret Paul's lack of response as a response. And then he reacts in his way. And Paul's just like, where did that come from? I just think that they, I think they're two men that don't communicate very much. And I think the problem, that's okay when two men don't communicate very much and they don't assume that they're communicating very much. But the problem with these two is that John, at least, thinks that they're always communicating. Yeah, and any, um, any failure to respond appropriately or, or in the way that John wants on Paul's behalf seems to confirm the, the lack of communication or the lack of intimacy. Well, I guess this is evidence that we're not as connected as I thought we were. Right, right. And I, I think that that is also a problem, that John is always looking for uh, proof of things that he's concerned about. Mm. You know, see, you didn't love me. Mm. You know, I think with Paul, it's probably he's probably requiring Paul to prove himself constantly. And Paul McCartney, probably in 1967, is just like, Jesus Christ, I've been like your best friend and supportive of you for like 10 years, John.
see Paul even talking these days, like in the lyrics, he's talking about, well, I don't know why John was doing it. He still doesn't know why John was calling him out and being aggressive. It's crazy to me that Paul hasn't figured this out. Yeah, or it's crazy that um, if after 50 plus years of being deeply invested in his relationship with Lennon and in some ways raking over the coals of that yes. relationship. Yes. He doesn't seem interested enough to try and find out. He just sort of shrugs his shoulders and says, <laughs> well, I guess I never really knew the guy. <laughs> and I guess I'll never know. And you know, I have thought about like, has nobody ever, you know, given any hypotheses to Paul about maybe John was doing this? And then I think, I think probably a lot of people have, but I suspect Paul probably shrugs it off and thinks, well, you don't know John, you know, so I'm not even taking your point of view. That's the only thing that I, I can think because I have to assume a number of people can read that this is the behavior of somebody that is reactive to him. It raises a general point that I find a little frustrating. Um, sometimes Paul will assert, everyone has their own theories about who did this and who did that, but nobody except the four of us will ever really understand. Yes. And I want to say, well, yes, that's true, because you're so guarded about it in so many ways. And you don't have to share all the intimate details of your private life, but you must realize by now that the world at large and a bunch of people in particular are very interested in the Beatles story and in the nature of the way you reacted to each other and in interacted with each other. Um, and your guardedness around that only makes it more intriguing. And, <laughs> and by the way, Paul, could you actually just tell us? Because <laughs> we really do want to know what you think when you're kind of like, huh, I still don't know why John did that. It's like, you know, he gives this theory of, well, I guess in Liverpool, you throw the first punch. Paul, do you really think that? Do you really think that? Mm. I don't, I, I have to assume he's fronting and saying, huh, don't know what it is. I, I think we all kind of suspect that he knows a lot more than he's letting yeah. on. And that's the frustration. I think so. And I've seen glimpses of that. The yeah. fact that uh, the public version of how he and John met at the Walton Village fete is sometimes counted in more private conversations where Paul has acknowledged, well, actually, there was this other encounter outside the fish and chip shop that preceded that. And there is the kind of private version of that meeting that does suggest that that he's aware, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And and. It probably gets to a, a conundrum and an issue that we have with Paul McCartney is he seems to jealously guard his real life, mm. private experiences and sees them as not for public consumption. And yet when he's writing something like maybe he just should not have written a biography and maybe he should not do interviews because what he ends up doing is giving these convoluted stories because he's not quite going to give us the truth. He want, he knows we want it and he wants to give us some version of it. I don't think he lies a lot, but mm. I don't think he gives us the full truth. And that just ends up with this slightly inauthentic version. Yeah, it leads to this sort of tension between Paul's deep concern with his own legacy and his guardedness about revealing yes. too much. Yes. And these things are in constant conflict and they just frustrate everyone. <laughs> They're just confused. And I must say, from what we've seen so far of the lyrics, I don't think that's gonna give us a whole lot more clarity, <laughs> unfortunately. You know, Paul is not opening up. He's giving us odd glimpses that only ma manages to bamboozle and confuse us. And I mean, if he wanted to spark more conversation, this is probably a good way.
But yeah. I don't think that's what he was trying to do. I think I think it is a result of this internal tension. Mm. And so maybe maybe we just have to accept the fact that we're going to have to piece it together. <laughs> what does he say most consistently? What seems most authentic? You know. Yeah. And, yeah. and hopefully somebody else will give us some insights in the way that they did for John someday. Mm-hmm. But anyways, um, you know, back to our main point that John. And Paul often misunderstand each other. I think we're seeing everything through Paul McCartney's perspective right now. And I think that the way Paul portrays himself now is not necessarily the way that he came off in 1969. You know, like Paul seems so sweet right now. And I just don't think that that is the guy that they were seeing in 1969. For example, Derek Taylor in this story, you know, in the next section, he talks about how Derek built him back up. Derek Taylor is incredibly important in that he's very close to Derek and Derek is close to John and not close to Paul. And Derek says that John really loved Paul and Paul in his own way loved John. And I don't think that that's true. I think that they both loved each other tremendously, but I think that's a reflection of how it came off sometimes Mm -hmm. that John was open and loving and Paul in his own way, in that he showed up and didn't leave, kind of loved John. And, and again, I don't think there's any truth to that. I think they loved each other equally. But that, to Derek, is how Paul comes off. That's the way that Paul seems to everyone else. Even though from our perspective right now, Paul seems extremely loving to John. I think to these guys in those days, you know, he's a kind of a confusing Northern character in that he writes love songs, but is also <laughs> apparently very shut off. Um, but that's Paul McCartney, you know, and John had to deal with that. And so to your point, in some ways, I think that Paul never got how vulnerable John was and how much John needed him mm. to reassure him. Although, Although, remember Paul tells that story where he says that at some point John says, well, I don't know how I'll be remembered. And he's like, and I told him, they're going to think you are amazing. And he kind of like gives John a talking to. So I think occasionally Paul did get it. Yeah. But I I suspect it was like one in 10 instances, Paul actually got that John was insecure. And it's funny because John's always saying he's insecure. And actually, Mm. even at the beginning, of 1969, there is a quote from John where he says he has to come back and he has to swallow his, what is it, swallow his ego and stifle his jealousy for Paul. And he tells this to Paul. And Paul's kind of like, okay. So Paul knows it, but I don't know if he really understands how serious this is to John. You know, like in the early 80s, he still doesn't understand how he could have hurt John Lennon. But he's trying. You see a shift in Paul's tonality towards John in maybe in the 90s, maybe when he got John's songs from Yoko. I don't know. Something happened where his tone towards John shifted. Mm. And all of a sudden he becomes very empathetic to John. And I think it, it was at that point that he started to understand how vulnerable John was. And only when he understands that he had a lot of power over John, that he actually does start to be very empathetic to John. Would you please read this this paragraph? Just that section. I was just about coming out of it around Maharishi, even though Brian had died. That knocked us back again. Well, it knocked me back. But I just about got my confidence then. With the acid trip scene, I went through the get rid of your ego bit. 
I really had a massive ego three or four years after acid. I spent the whole time, <laughs> this is now three or four years after acid. <laughs> Carrying on. Oh my um, God, this is where my head is hurting, yes. Yeah. Okay. I spent the whole time trying to destroy my ego, which I did until I had nothing left. I went to India with Maharishi and that, and he was saying, ego is good as long as you look after it. Don't destroy it at all. But I've really destroyed it. And I was so paranoid and weak, and I couldn't do anything. I'd really done a good job on the ego. And I was just about building it back up again when I met Yoko. It literally went in weeks. I was just trying to work it back again and get confidence in myself. Then we met Derek again after a long time, and Derek did a good job of building the ego one weekend at his house reminding wow. me of who I am and what I've done, what I could do. He just reminded me of who I am. Him and a couple of friends did that for me. They said, you're great. You are what you are and you're infinite and all that. The next week, Yoko came down to Derek's. That was it. And then I just blew out. The thing, the things were coming out and Yoko came and opened the door a little bit. I love you for what you are, whatever it is. And I respected her genius. For her to love me was the answer then. She wouldn't have loved a dummy, which I'd begun to think I was. That helped the accumulation. I was just out of it then. Yeah, I mean, this is another tremendously important paragraph. Mm. You know, again, convoluted timeline, three or four. I mean, I, it just, we won't even try that one. Let's just say that he was coming out of it around the Maharishi and that knocked him back. I think when he's talking about ego here, he's talking about confidence. Here's what I find so interesting is that he talks about, I'd really destroyed it. And if that's his confidence or his sense of self. Mm -hmm. So he's talking about, he couldn't do anything. He couldn't write. He was no good, all this kind of stuff that he had no confidence left. And it took sort of something external like he needed reminding. He got reminded by Derek about who he was. And then he got confidence in himself. And then it just kind of came blasting back. And I think that this aligns with mid-68. But all of a sudden, John's angry. Yeah, You know, he's very angry. And the person he's most angry with is Paul McCartney. Jeff Emmerich notices this in the studio, that there's something that has shifted between Paul and John. And, and there's something in this time and this period of building his ego up with acid, with Derek. Um, he comes back and a couple of weeks later, he declares he's Jesus Christ. And I think he was really going through some major stuff at this point. Yes. I suspect he pinpoints Paul McCartney as letting him down. And you know, when he comes back, there seems to be a rage at Paul and I suspect it is connected to this. I was going through murder and he mm. wasn't, mm. you know, that he wasn't there for me. He, he wasn't the person that I thought he was because I needed him. And then he was happy when I wasn't happy. You know what I mean? Like all conflated in this yeah. whole ramble is that it was Derek and Yoko that said I was great. And the really fascinating thing here is he said that Yoko came and opened the door a little bit and said, I love you for what you are, whatever it is. And I respected her genius. For her to love me was the answer then. And we know that when John was in Rishikesh, 
He was looking to the Maharishi for the answer. In fact, Paul makes fun of him for thinking that the Maharishi is going to slip him the answer. And this is months later. He has left India and given up on the Maharishi being the answer. And he decides that for her to love me was the answer then. And it's not like he says, I fell in love with her. He says that I respected her genius. And for her to love me was the answer then. Yeah. And I find it really incredible because when John was in Rishikesh, he writes the song, Look at Me. And this is before he is with Yoko. Yeah. Apparently, John and Yoko consistently tell the story that they got together for good when he comes back, yet he writes the song, Look at Me. And I suspect Look at Me is not for Yoko. I suspect that it is for Paul to see him, to recognize him, to listen to him. And for some reason, he doesn't. And John gets back, he goes through this terrible period, Pete Schott, and says it's the most depressed he's ever been in his life when he comes back. And Derek helps build him back. And Yoko is there and she says, I love you for what you are whatever it is, and for her to love me was the answer. Yeah, I read, um, reread many years from now, relatively recently, and when you were talking about Rishikesh, I, I jogged my memory of the section of that book where Paul talks about India. And I remember recently reading it and, and kind of seeing what Paul is describing 20 or 30 years later, but from John's perspective, because they all agree to go on this retreat, which is focused on a meditation teacher course, so that mm -hmm. they're all kind of signed up for this course, which is designed to get them to the point where they can teach other people to meditate. And it's not as though they're there for an indefinite amount of time, like they're moving to Rishikesh. They don't take yes. you know, all their belongings with them. Um, I, I think that you know, there is a sort of a finite period for it. And then Ringo goes home after a couple of weeks. Paul goes home after four weeks. And I always wondered, and I think he's unclear about this and, and other people are unclear about this. Did John know that Paul was going to leave after four weeks? And the way Paul tells the story is that he had it in his mind. He says in the anthology, I had it in my mind. I'd give myself a month and then I was going to go back. So he signs up for this course that he already knows he's not going to complete. Do, do yeah. the other Beatles know that you're just going to do this disappearing act? <laughs> um, they, they choose to stay. Can I just clarify that they stay for another three and a half weeks? They stay for another three and a half weeks. Magic Alex pours poison in John's ear about the Maharishi. Um, and so they have this kind of severed alliance with the Maharishi. They make their way back to London. And the way Paul tells the story in many years from now, they get off the plane at Heathrow and drive straight to Paul's house and <laughs> yes. tell Paul the story of what's happened. And Paul's reaction is to defend the Maharishi. <laughs> and so I can see John being annoyed. First you disappear without following through on this thing we've all agreed to. And then when I come back and say, you know what, you were right, he's an asshole. Suddenly you're defending him to my face. <laughs> Paul would be a, such a nightmare to deal with as a best friend. The other thing that he said, I don't know if you noticed this, that was really weird, is he said, 
I came back and I didn't even know if there would be a Beatles. Yeah. I didn't even know if they were going to come back. It That's was just true. like, what, Paul, you left? Not knowing <laughs> you were just like, maybe I'll see you again. Like <laughs> He can be so callous mm. at times. And the thing is, is that John later talks about the breakup of the, of the Beatles really starting when Ringo and Paul left Rishikesh. Mm. So I think the fact that Paul left was a really, really big deal to John. Mm. I don't think Paul has any idea. Like you said, in Paul's mind, he's like, well, I did my four weeks. Mm. And then he comes back and he looks great. He's like, I do feel better. You know, I think it, I think it <laughs> helps me. It's going to help me write more good albums, you know? <laughs> and meanwhile, John starts writing your blues and just hypothesizing here. But if John's writing, look at me and trying to connect and really needs this connection to his family, the Beatles, and Paul just takes off. And then he comes back and he's very, very depressed. And previously he thought, I was really depressed and Paul didn't notice when I was going through this two years of murder. And plus I'm kind of struggling here in Rishikesh and he takes off. You know, John just might have come to a conclusion that Paul just doesn't care that much about me or I care a lot more. Hmm. And he's read this book by Hunter Davies where Cynthia says, you need them more than they need you. Mm. And I can see feeling rage about that if you really loved and felt like you'd given a lot to somebody. Everything we've been saying since we started talking about this interview throws a Spaniard in the works of this claim that Paul is the sad, depressed, jilted lover and John is this great hero striding into the 1970s like he doesn't give a shit. John was very clear about his perspective. Like John gave this interview. It's not like he's hiding this side of him. He mm. gave this interview and he explained how he was feeling. And that's the John Lennon that I love that's brave enough to say this kind of thing, yeah. you know? And so I would like this John Lennon to be understood because John wanted to be understood. And I do suspect he told this to Miles so that it would get back to Paul. Mm. And I don't know if it, you know, it was unpublished. And actually, Miles makes the point that he was kind of cut off from Paul at that time because Linda cut off all the Jane friends. Mm. And so I don't know if Paul was actually close enough to Miles at this point to hear it. But the point of all this is, is this is the reality. There is another side to what was going on. And, and this side needs to be understood as well. Absolutely. Miles asks the non sequitur question, three <laughs> words long, Maxwell Silverhammer? <laughs> and John responds, that's McCartney, as you might know. We don't really write together anymore. We haven't written together for two years, not really. Just occasional bits we help. Somebody's got to use a line or two. Miles, how does that affect you when you're playing them? John, it doesn't make any odds who writes them. It's when the Beatles perform that makes it into Beatles music. It's a long time since we've sat down and written together for many reasons, because we used to write together mainly on tour. Then there was a valid reason for it. 
it got false. Come round to my house and we'll write some songs. It doesn't work anymore. Whew. Interesting. Yeah. So, what do you find interesting? <laughs> well, many things. First of all, I think it's funny that he just needs to list the song and question mark Maxwell Silverhammer. <laughs> Enough said. Um, but what I loved was John's answer to this, which was that it doesn't make any odds who writes them. It's when the Beatles perform them that makes it into Beatles music. And yeah. I love that the fact that at this point he's still generous, and there's that sense of ownership. Mm. That comes even four months later when he's talking about the fact that he doesn't care how something does in the charts. He only cares about how come together. Mm. And John, John has become more extreme by Lennon remembers, you know, when he's mm. talking about the fact that they stopped writing together, what, in 1963 or whatever. And at that point, he's very much his, mine, his, mine. Mm. I think he does it for two reasons. One because he wants to get credit. I think he's very afraid of not getting credit because Paul at that point was really celebrated as a musical genius. This is mm. pre-breakup spin. Paul had a really great reputation, so he wants to get ownership for his songs. I also feel like he does it as a way of throwing it in Paul's face. There seems something a bit aggressive by saying, we stopped writing together in 1962 because Paul knows certainly very well that that's not true. And the idea of this is my song, this is his, is kind of like, I never really loved you anyways. It's kind of a way of making light of their partnership. Yeah. And I think everything you're saying is, is right about how the individual members of the Beatles contributed to a shared and collaborative creativity. And yeah. I think you can hear really interesting examples of that in some of the audio that's now officially available in these um, expanded elements of Let It Be, like John asking the question, has anybody got a fast one, in a way that suggests it, the songs exist to fuel the Beatles' collective creativity. Right. Um, I, I suppose I, I, I want to question um, John's claim that they haven't written together really for a long time. And you could use the Let It Be period as an example. I would have thought that I've Got a Feeling is a really strong example of a Lennon-McCartney collaboration, even if you acknowledge it's a throwing together of two fragments, one independently by Paul McCartney and one independently by John Lennon. A lot of their work is done that way. A Day in the Life is to some extent done that way, and that's one of their finest collaborations. And even when John is writing individually, he still follows that template of I have this bit and I have this bit. Let's see what happens if I mash them together. So when right. he's doing that with McCartney, there's an argument that that is actually just an extension of his very personal and individual creativity. All I want is the truth We should change the hands Tell me some truth I've had enough of reading lines By soon sit down Hard-sided politicians All I want is the truth Just give me some truth That's right, they work like that But also, for example, in Give Me Some Truth You know, Paul's actually throwing in some lyrics And... We've got accounts from people that were in Rishikesh saying that John and Paul took off in the afternoons every day and wrote together. And then John himself later in the 70s says that the Lennon-McCartney partnership was at a peak in 1967. Mm. Paul has always said that, that 
the Sgt. Pepper album was much more collaborative than has been acknowledged. You know, he says that he participated in writing Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. And John uh, contributed to She's Leaving Home and um, with a little help from my friends. Like there's so much support for the fact that they were still writing together. I think it's an emotional thing, which leads to the next paragraph. So please read it again. It doesn't make any odds who writes them. It's when the Beatles perform that it makes it into Beatles music. It's a long time since we've sat down and written together for many reasons, because we used to write together mainly on tour. Then that was a valid reason for it. It got false. Come round to my house and we'll write some songs. It doesn't work anymore. So, you know, I think that the, the line that we're both probably keying into is when he's talking about them writing together, he says, there was a valid reason for it. It got false. Hmm. It doesn't work anymore. And it's really interesting because he's saying that it's a long time since we've sat down and written together for many reasons. Okay, so we've just dismantled that idea. So John, it's September. It's been you know a few months since you finished The Ballad of John and Yoko with Paul. So that's hmm. even not technically true. But... I think that that's an emotional, like that. that's his feeling that they don't mm-hmm. really write together. And, and John said that in, uh, about nine years after London Remembers in 1980, he said that um, he said those things because that's how he felt. Mm-hmm. He felt like that. So this is just an emotional thing. But looking at this line here, that it got false, come around to my house and we'll write some songs, which is kind of funny because there was nothing false about that. That's how no. professional partners <laughs> usually work. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like that is like that is textbook example of how people work together. They call each other, they get together, they work <laughs> on something. <laughs> so that to me suggests, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about this because we've also addressed it in the St. Regis interview where he again says there's no point to them writing together because they don't live together. And so to me, that suggests that their partnership wasn't just professional, that their partnership also had an emotional element to it, like Mm. an intimacy. It required for John a shared view of the world or a shared dream, or like a shared sense that they were together for it to seem like something that was special and real to him. Yeah. There's, something, there's something really bitter about the word false, too. A false is a, a harsh word, you know? Yeah, I feel like um, it's, it's tempting to yet again compare the Lennon-McCartney creative collaboration to a form of marriage, or at least to a long-term relationship, where, of course, you're going to have a honeymoon phase where everything is natural and organic, and you don't have to work hard at all for intimacy and romance to exist. Um, But then there will come a point in any and every relationship of that nature where you have to work harder to try and rekindle the flame. This is just a part of life. And I think that's kind of, in a looser way, what he's describing and objecting to. That the, the falseness in his mind is that it doesn't feel natural or it doesn't flow as easily or there's something inauthentic about what collaboration has become. And it's analogous to what I'm saying about relationships, don't you think? 
This is always a conundrum to me because John does say something like that in the 70s. This is my issue is that 1967 was apparently a peak for them. That's what John says. So that's why I'm always like, was the passion, was the interest going out? Because John basically moved into Cavendish. They had this peak of their relationship in 1967. John had dreams of going and living together in Greece. And so that's why I'm always a bit conflicted about whether or not it really was just a maturing relationship where the spark had gone out or whether or not it had been getting better. I'm agreeing with you that I don't necessarily see come round to my house and we'll write some songs as false in and of itself simply because it didn't happen organically. They had to make an arrangement for that to happen. I would right. say I would say it's comparable to being in I don't know Fourthland Road in 1960 and phoning John saying walk over and we'll write a song or yeah. being in a hotel room and saying we've got yes. half an hour let's write a song it's exactly right. the same thing um, right well and then John talks about that in the 70s when he's talking about like the early stage where they just couldn't get enough of each other and they were always writing together and yeah. you know they really had the hots for each other in terms of writing together yeah. and he has actually said things about that like he he wanted that feeling again. And so, yeah, there could be something to that, that he wanted it to happen naturally and the fact that they had to work for it a little bit um, perhaps meant to him that it wasn't real anymore. It's like, mm-hmm. um, you know, how we were just talking about the fact that when John was in India and John seems to be looking in 1968 for proof that Paul cares as much as he does. Again, you know, this is written in paper that John cares more about the Beatles. And so he's maybe looking for proof and then he's not getting it. He's getting a very professional Paul saying, yes, I'll come out and drive or let's take off two hours and write together. Right. And I think John wants acknowledgement that we're not doing something mechanical together. We're writing songs together, that we are yeah. sharing a mind, that we have this creative chemistry that's still flowing. And it suggests to me that what John is looking for in a creative partnership is not functional. Uh, A partnership where you come together and you've got this creative chemistry when you get together and you start to work isn't what he's looking for. He's looking for somebody who he can share his world with and his worldview and everything they create is together, you know, because it's interesting how John Lennon does like to have his name with people. You yeah. know, and, and so I just wonder if at this point, John wants a full commitment from the person he's creating with. Cynthia Lennon said that he wanted a partner at this time. And I just wonder if he wants everything in a partner, not suggesting he wanted Paul to be his love partner, just suggesting that he had this longing, this symbiosis for this person that he's with and that maybe when he's on tour it seems like that and then they get back and he moves into Paul's place when Jane's away and that seems like that and then he wants them to go and live in Greece together and that would replicate that and then they go to India and then that kind of sets up that situation again where they're sharing their lives together but of course Paul goes and lives in the city away from John Paul doesn't want to go to Greece and Paul leaves India and, and so maybe John is getting this message that there's a limit to what Paul is willing to give to the relationship. 
Yeah, I've said it before in our discussions, and I have no idea whether it's one that's already been released to the public or not. <laughs> I know whether the tape was even rolling. Yeah. But yeah. I have talked to you about how uh, there, it, it's it's a bit of a cliche about Paul McCartney, but I think there's one that, that is supported by evidence that he does sort of build walls around. Yes, and he said that. Yeah. And um, I imagine that some of those walls even extend to some of his closest relationships. Yes. I mean, they probably don't exist with his own children and with no. Nancy. Um, but I can see how a relationship like John, the one he had with, with John, as intimate as it was, there are probably instances of those walls being present, even though at other times they, they, they might fall down. Like... Um, he sings in here today about the night we cried, which is a really interesting and, and beautiful thing to explicitly reference in a song about John written after John's death. And I think that that's an instance of a time when the wall came tumbling down. Um, and what might have been upsetting to John is the expectation that now the wall's down we've broken through that particular barrier and our relationship has reached a kind of a new level of intimacy only to discover that the wall gets sort of re-erected in their relationship uh, the next day or, or some point down the track. Well, that's right. And, and I think that, that that is supported by what Klein said, that John had confessed to him that every time he opened up to McCartney, he was then let down by Paul. Maybe we can read that into it. Even the night of um, the LSD, we've talked about this a million times in the breakup, so I'm sorry this is repetition, but the night of they, the, they take LSD together, they're sort of merging, saying I know to each other and can see each other in each other's eyes. And then Paul gets up and has to go outside. Like Paul mm. takes breaks from the intimacy. Then Paul goes to bed insanely. Like I can't imagine doing an acid trip with somebody and then them being like, yeah, well, see, ya, I'm going to bed and leaving that person alone. <laughs> That's kind of like the insensitivity that Paul can show that probably hurt John time and again. So, and, yeah. and it may not even be that Paul is that insensitive. It may be that Paul feels things too strongly and gets overwhelmed and then just puts the walls back up, mm. you know, which is probably more likely the case. I mean, you know, he's one of the more, world's most famous people and he's a love song writer or songwriter. The, the guy's got to feel extremely deeply, but he obviously has a fear of it too. So yeah, I think Paul has a mind that compartmentalizes very effectively for him. And he's also a very careful thinker in how he approaches everything in life, even though he's very instinctual in some other ways, especially creatively, he can be very instinctual. Yeah. Um, and, and I think an example of that is related to his and John's experiences of LSD and how they, they caused a degree of friction. So um, John and George, are, and, and I think particularly John, want Paul to take LSD with them, um, but he chooses to have his first LSD experience with Tara Brown. And yeah. I can see how from John's perspectives, that's an insensitive thing to do. Like, why wouldn't Paul trust me enough yeah. to have had that first experience with me as, the, as a person who's closer to him? I can also see in Paul's way of thinking, I want to test that experience with a, low, a lower stakes relationship before I make the decision to dive with both feet in into the most intense and important relationship in my life. 
So I, I can see it from both their perspectives, and, and I think it is illustrative of a difference in the way they think. Yeah, but also what's interesting is John really wanted to do it with Paul. He really wanted to do LSD with Paul, and Paul was avoiding it like the plague until he finally gave in. He says that about it. He's like, it was a long time coming. And so you can see Paul running from the intimacy and John seeking it out. Mm. Um, John's also incredibly, incredibly sensitive. So if Paul opens up and seems open and then drops the wall again, I mean, John has his own issues with that. Like that must have been extremely painful for somebody like John Lennon who had that same thing with the Julia who was in his life and then would leave and then was in it and then would leave. And we've got accounts like Robert Rosen, who apparently read John's diaries, said that John was always afraid. Like this was something that was present in his diaries that when he'd get angry with people that they would leave. Mm -hmm. And so if Paul is close to John and then would pull back again, it probably would make John feel insecure about their relationship. People always harp on Paul being insecure, which I think he was too, Mm. but I also think John was. And I think this attempt to get them to all live together somewhere was probably partly reassuring himself that they would all be together, that this was their family, that they're committed to each other. Um, And potentially when Paul left India and Paul wasn't around necessarily when he was going through this horrible period in 1968, that John just thought maybe he just doesn't care that much and maybe I need more. If Paul wants to treat this professionally, um, that that's not enough for me. And, and this is when Yoko enters mm. and is willing to be there. Like, forget the sex. Like, you know, let's just take that out of the, the equation here. He finds somebody who... Maybe he doesn't write with Yoko the way he does with Paul, but he's got somebody who's willing to be fully invested emotionally with Mm. him. And it kind of solves an issue. He wants to be fully invested with somebody. And so I can see John is sort of playing with these ideas in this conversation. You know, he's, he's giving us some good information. And in 1972, John, um, he says something really interesting. He doesn't name Paul, but clearly his partner is Paul. It's a plus, it's not a minus. The plus is that your best friend also can hold you without, I mean, I'm not homosexual, or we could have had a homosexual relationship, and maybe that would have satisfied it with working with other male artists. Yeah. Uh, an artist, it's more, it is much better to be working with another artist of the same energy, and that's why there's always being Beatles or Marx Brothers or men together, you know, because it's all right for them to work together or whatever it is. It's the same except that we sleep together, you know? I mean, not counting love and all the things on the side, you know, just as working relationship with her. It has all the benefits of working with yeah. another male artist and all the, the, yeah, the joint inspiration, and then we can hold yeah, but, hands too, right? Yeah, but Yoga's a very independent... I think that, that that shows how John was trying to figure out how they could get the level of intimacy that John needed for their partnership to continue. Mm. But I think by 1968, he's looking for that level of um, commitment and intimacy and so he's musing that maybe if we had been 
like Yoko and I are, then our partnership, creative partnership could have continued, but we weren't. So that couldn't be. And I think that sometimes when people listen to the breakup series, they think that we're talking about sex and we're really not. You know, Yoko made this comment to Norman that John had intimated to her that he had considered proposing an affair to Paul. I don't see that as sexual. I see that as John Lennon being so open to anything and so wanting to have some kind of intimacy that he was open-minded enough to think, maybe that's how I get there. But then he gives up on that idea. And so for me, the breakup series is a search for intimacy on John's side. And I think Paul wanted that kind of intimacy as well. I just think that Paul had a different, you know, maybe had a different way of showing his intimacy or his need or his love by always showing up, you know? Rather yeah, than, and I think yeah. perhaps um, as genuine as Paul's desire for intimacy is, it might not have been as as desperate and needy and all-consuming as it was for John. That's right. I really do think that John, I think John's need for fusing and symbiosis with somebody is is very extreme. And so, yes, John is driving the situation in 1968. Um, And I think that maybe Paul was comfortable. Maybe music is such a form of intimacy that when he goes and shows up and spends four hours with John in an afternoon, that that sort of satisfies his need. Mm. When he does LSD with John a couple of times, that is enough for him. That's all that he can take. Because being that vulnerable for that long is hard for him. So he has to kind of pull back. I mean, we're getting very, very deeply into the psychological, but John is kind of burying his soul, you know? Yeah, I think you're right, at least to suggest that uh, John wants uh, an all-consuming relationship that covers everything that he's getting creatively from Paul, but also deals with um, other elements of intimacy, including the erotic. And and that's what he gets from Yoko. And I think um, Yoko, in some of the things she said, um, suggests she fully understood that's what she was signing up for. Um, and especially comments she's made about how the, 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 um, the possibility of the relationship was as scary a prospect as it was exciting. And as much as she, you know, wanted it and genuinely loved John, um, she has talked about how, for example, she didn't want the Beatles to break up because she understood what a burden it would place on her as John's partner in absolutely everything. Um, and uh, maybe that's a self-serving comment that sort of. I I, I think that I mean yeah. that yeah, one's yeah. a tough one because May Pang said that it was Yoko who really put the idea of leaving in John's mind. Mm. And she might've had that all of a sudden panicky feeling like, Oh shit, now I have to carry everything. But I think she was very happy to have yeah. John all to herself for, for the next for the six next, months or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I think that's what it is. I think um, it's more than one impulse um, and more than one emotion. And I, I think, I think she knew what she was getting into and she understood what, John wanted maybe in some ways more than Paul did, or she intuited that she was able to to give it to him where Paul wasn't. I think this is why Paul leans into he was so in love because he understands he can't satisfy part of what John needs Mm. on that level of intimacy. 
And you see John pulling away in 1968, 69, and Paul being very, very sad. Like, I think that Paul legitimately was brokenhearted because he loved the intimacy that he and John Mm. had. And the fact that he couldn't lean into a closer relationship. You know, he likes living in London. He doesn't want to live down the street from John in Weybridge. He needs his space. And then John says, okay, fine, I'll find somebody else who can. I think that puts Paul into such a painful position because he doesn't want to lose what he's got. But he knows John needs a partner too. Yeah, you know? I agree with you. Uh, sometimes I think of um, interesting things Paul has said about, you know my name, look up the number, as a kind of demonstration of that. Um, both when he's he's talking to Lewis and for the Beatles recording sessions album, and Lewis, Lewis asks him what's his favorite Beatles song, and he gives the curious answer, you know my name, look up the number. I think because it's a brilliant example of whatever was unique and special about that collaboration and yeah. the fact that in on this occasion in 1969 after a point at which he might have been worried it didn't exist anymore yes. they were able to recapture it that's yes, why this song is really special for him and that is supported by the fact that he loves that late stage picture as yeah. well that photo that linda took that's a good thing to throw in i think it may also be behind why um John wanted to release You Know My Name, Look Up the Number as a plastic Ono band single, and Paul vetoes it. I think part of what's behind that might be Paul saying, that is very unique to you and me. That is not a plastic Ono band side project. Well, I do find it odd that, that for John's first single, he wants to put out a length. (laughs) I wish he had, because then it would show that it was a total joke. You know what I mean? Like, here's my new band. It's me and Paul. You know, it's just like, (laughs) like, it's crazy. Um, But yes, I can understand why Paul would be like, "Uh, no. But again, like the ownership of the song issue, you know, where John starts to say, this is mine. Mm. I think that in some ways, John does that to hurt Paul. Mm. To say, yeah, you think you were part of that? No, that's mine. I'm putting that up myself. You think that you are part of my songs? No, they're mine. Yeah, it's it's a way of diminishing and um, and erasing Paul. And this is what I think that the whole John and Yoko story does, and John's hero story does, is it erases Paul's importance One, to John. Two, three, four. an author. Oh, yes. I said to you um, in a texting conversation 
that John Harris, who is probably the principal um, ghost author of the Beatles' Get Back book, um, was talking to Joe Wisby on the Beatles Books podcast. And he made the point that of all of the Beatles in these hours and hours of footage recorded for Get Back or Let It Be, whatever you want to call it, um, Paul is the one who seems the most acutely aware of the fact that the band may break up and the one who seems to be the most affected by that awareness. Right. And I wanted to address that, actually. Paul's in this horrible situation where he desperately wants to continue his partnership with John, and he potentially intuits that he can't fulfill this all-consuming thing. And so he, he doesn't necessarily want Yoko in the studio, but he knows that Yoko fulfills some stuff that John really needs. Mm. And I personally suspect that Paul may be thinking, maybe between the two of us, like if, if Yoko satisfies some of his need for creativity and he gets the love and, you know, the, the physical side of it from Yoko and, and yeah. some creative side, then maybe I can continue my partnership with him, potentially in a smaller capacity, but it will still be there. Yeah. But I think that that was very painful for Paul, I imagine, because that's a shifting of their relationship. And Paul had always been primary to John as John had been primary to Paul. Mm. But I think Paul recognized. Um, he seems to have understood the ramifications of some of these actions much more so um, than the others. You see that Paul is processing it through all of his songs. You know, as I mentioned at the beginning, Paul's whole year of songs are sad and about goodbyes and... Yeah. of themes of like a winding down of something and the two of us even though that's partly inspired by Linda and the excitement of a new relationship he's also saying goodbye to something or the, the, he sees it ending and so there's a reason why Paul looks so sad is I think it's very immediate to him mm. I think that Paul is processing this and you see for the from the rest of them I don't think they're taking it as seriously because as we discussed before Paul and John think that the Beatles revolves around the axis of Lennon and McCartney. Mm. And so if that is crumbling, then, you know, then the Beatles they loved is crumbling too. And so I think that both John and Paul are trying to figure out like, how do we do the Beatles if we're not at the center of it? Mm. And it's very painful probably to both of them, but Paul seems to recognize it the most at this time. And I think that people who have listened to the breakup series or that question our point of view, like, well, if Paul is showing that he's upset constantly, you know, what is this bullshit that you're saying that John wants to know how Paul feels? And I just like to address that because the thing is, I think that John knows how much Paul loves the Beatles. He knows that he loves the Beatles and does not want the Beatles to end. What John does not know 
is that Paul cares for him and loves him and is committed to him. Because, you know, Paul leaves India to go deal with Beatles stuff. And one of the things that he complains about in Lennon Remembers is they had become sidemen for Paul. So I think that part of frustration is that you stopped caring about me and started caring about you and using the Beatles as a vehicle for your fame rather than as an outlet for our vision and our creativity. And so that's that's how I reconcile the fact that John can see Paul's upset and I think that personally I think that John gets some joy out of that because we know that John struggled for two years and Paul was uh, having the happiest days of his life so probably when he says I want a divorce that is partly to hurt Paul he's destroying the thing that he knows Paul loves and I think when he gets the reaction he knows that both Paul is sad about potentially the Beatles breaking up but John doesn't say that he says I'm splitting you know I'm leaving and Paul is upset about that so he's got some support that Paul is not just upset about the Beatles he's upset about John I just got two little things to say um, because I can't be more insightful than you. I can just sort of throw a couple of uh, things into the the side here. Um, one is that uh, occasionally I hear people, uh, John Lennon might be amongst them, um, denigrate Paul as being you know ruthlessly ambitious, um, and his interest in the Beatles is purely professional. I think what you're saying demonstrates the fact that that's not the case. There is emotion an emotional investment involved for Paul McCartney. It's more than just a vehicle for his stardom and fame and power and money. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Just to add to that, the fact that John said that reflects the fact that that's what John thought. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, The other thing, and I think that this is something that speaks to the reason why you wanted to have this discussion in the first place, is that Yes, those things are true of how Paul McCartney feels, especially in January 1969. What that doesn't mean is that Paul's entire life from January 69 through to some unspecified point in the 1970s <laughs> is dominated by sadness and his entire aspect becomes a kind of a shrinking violet emo kid. That's right. That's right. Thank you for bringing that up. When I talk about the fact that John doesn't know if Paul cares about him. Paul is showing lots of emotions about the band that year, but he also doesn't give in to anything John wanted that year. He doesn't give in to Klein. He doesn't allow Billy Preston in. He drives the albums in the way that he wants. He gets Maxwell Silver on uh, an album, whereas John doesn't get uh, What's the New Mary Jane. Even on something about the Beatles recently, they were like, nothing gets past John Lennon or George Harrison. And it's like, well, why the hell are those guys complaining about Maxwell Silverhammer for the rest of their lives? Paul has a lot of control that year. And then they go to the 4442 meeting and Paul doesn't agree to anything John suggests, any of his solutions. And he doesn't allow cold turkey to be honest. Even though Paul might look upset about the breakup of the Beatles, Mm. he's not willing to do much.
And I think if the Beatles had broken up, say, nicely, if John hadn't said, I'm leaving, I wasn't going to tell you before we signed this, you know, because they were talking about it fairly amicably in the right. early 1969. Yeah. And if Paul McCartney wasn't blamed for the rest of his life for breaking up the band, for being the bad guy, and being sort of separated from the other three, I don't know if he would have been so destroyed by this um, in the long run. But then he did go through this very sad period afterwards. And then he rebounds with this album, McCartney, and then comes up with Ram six months after that. Many times I've been alone And many times I've cried all the crying out during 1969, you know? Like all of his emotional processing of the breakup came up then. Whereas John, his really emotional album comes out six months after, yeah, after the breakup. And this is where spin comes in, is John attributes that to Janov and primal therapy and his upbringing, which I'm sure partly was true, but I'm sure it also had to do with the breakup. And you can see he's so disillusioned. And I think that would have come from the thing that he loved breaking up. And so John processed it later. And then George and Ringo processed it. You know, you you look at them in 1973, 74, John, George and Ringo are not doing well. They just dealt with it in different ways at different times. I think they were all hugely invested in the Beatles and it impacted them all for the rest of their lives. Yeah. She looks as an African queen. She eating 12 chapatis and cream. She tastes as Mongolian lamb. She coming from Aldebaran. So clearly they were all affected by the breakup. And I think this interview from John reflects how impacted John was. It certainly refutes the idea that Paul was the only one who was saddened, insecure, and confused by this situation. And it adds dimension to this very murky period around the breakup, which of course gives us a lot more to talk about. So we'll be back very soon. What a shame Mary Jane had a vein at the party. Thanks, Duncan, for being such a wonderful partner, matching my insanity and curiosity about this period. My pleasure. Happy to be here, as always. And thanks, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please let me know. I'd love to hear from you on Twitter, Instagram, email, uh, whatever form, skywriting. I'd love to hear your thoughts. But I would also love it if you would promote this episode, and this episode in particular, because I think this is such an important addition to the conversation around the Beatles breakup. And as I said at the beginning, it has been wildly unexplored 
and ignored for too long. And if you're inspired to write a review or give the podcast a five-star rating, uh, please do. I would be most grateful. Um, you know, since this podcast is challenging the dominant narrative, it can be a little polarizing. And um, I, I thank everyone who has already gone and given it a great review. Thank you. I see it and I appreciate it. Also, I often reference the breakup series, which I did with Phoebe Lord from the podcast, Another Kind of Mind. Please check out the always fascinating Another Kind of Mind podcast. And a big thank you to the Tumblr blog, A Moral 2, or Amoral Toe, um, whose material and insight has been a huge inspiration. So that's it for now. We will be back very soon. Hope everyone stays well. Until next time. Bye-bye. Bye. N S W.